we're going to keep it simple this morning, okay? I like to start off, I'm noticing a trend in my sermons, and I often start off by saying, imagine something. I, I like that. I think it's good to use our imaginations. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it real easy because, you know, time change. And by the way, I am convinced that the whole time change thing is part of the fruit of the fall. I am, I'm positive, absolutely certain of that. The time will never change in heaven, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am against it. Someday we'll rise up as Christians and just boycott time change altogether. So let's make this easy. Imagine you had to get up and get ready in the morning, right? You with me? It's pretty simple here, okay? So you get up and you get ready in the morning and, and you know, maybe you put on makeup, maybe you do your hair, hopefully you get dressed, you know, you, you do the normal things to get ready in the morning and you, you think, I'm looking pretty good. It's time to go, you know, I'm, I'm looking really good. Yeah, I lost an hour of sleep, but man, I look good. And right before you go out the door, you think, I'm just, one more mirror. I'm just going to check in one more mirror to make sure I look as good as I really think I do. And so you check in the mirror. But there's a problem with that particular mirror. It distorts things. And I don't mean just it's hard to see because it's dirty or warped. I mean it changes what you see in the mirror. So here you are already looking good, but you look in the mirror and you see yourself as if you just rolled out of bed. Hair's a mess, you've got drool coming down, you know, stuff hanging out your nose. Maybe that's just me. Don't come early to my house. But, you know, that's what you see in the mirror. So here you are thinking, man, I look good. I'm ready for the day. And you look in the mirror and you see something awful. Well, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you just rolled out of bed and your hair's all disheveled and the, dro- the drool's coming down and, and you don't have a problem with the other thing. But, you know, you're, you're, you're just rolling out of bed and you're all nasty. But you, you choose to look in that mirror first. Oh, man, what do I need to do this morning to get myself ready for the day? And you look in this mirror that distorts things, and in that mirror, you look good. <laughs> Hair's all perfectly combed, your clothes are all on. I mean, you just, you look really, really good. Now, what's the problem with that? You're looking at something that is giving you a sense of yourself, but that thing is distorting it, it's twisting it, it's causing you to see the wrong thing. And it really doesn't matter if you look good, but you think you look bad, or you look bad and you think you look good. Either way, it's a problem, right? And as Christians, we often come at that from two different angles. Some people think, well, I look so amazing, but you really don't. The mirror is telling us that, and I'm not talking about outward looks, okay? Let's just make sure that's clear. I'm talking about the mirrors that we use to examine our own soul. And there are times that we we examine our own soul and we think, oh, I look great, but we really don't. And there's other times we examine our own soul and we think, oh, I'm just so awful. and How can anybody love us? And God's saying, wait a minute, I've got a mirror to show you. you. You're wonderful. I love you. I have forgiven you. I have given you grace and I have saved you. We all have mirrors. Only some of our mirrors are on the wall. Most of the mirrors that we're looking at constantly are in our own heart, in our own head, evaluating and judging us. Things that we look at to gauge who we are and what we're doing. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week we looked at verses 16 and 17. Today we are looking at 
chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. So it's, we're going to the opposite extremes. Short passage to a really, really long one. And the first phrase there, what do you see in verse 18 is the first phrase? Anybody, call it out. Do not, do not deceive yourselves. Think about the weight of that statement right there. We could spend a whole sermon, probably a whole series, on how we as people deceive ourselves. When I read that phrase, I think how terrifying this is, that I could be living my life thinking something is true when it's absolutely patently false, especially if it's something about me, about who I am, about how great I am, or how worthless I am, whatever it is, if I am self-deceptive, if I'm lying to myself, I'm going on and living day to day as if something is true, and everybody around me knows it's not. Do not deceive yourselves. This is a warning and a rebuke because the Corinthian Christians were doing exactly that. They were deceiving themselves. So we need to take this to heart and say today, how is it that we deceive ourselves? How do we stop deceiving ourselves? And I'm going to suggest to you, and you see it in the title of the sermon there, it's by looking in the mirror of the gospel. We're going to look at how the gospel, just three ways how the gospel is a mirror for us that shows us who we belong to, shows us how to truly measure ourselves, how do we truly judge or or weigh what we're doing and how we're living, and how do we weigh others as well, and then what's the standard of what it means to live out the gospel in this world? How do we know we're getting it? How do we know we're really living the gospel in this world? So let's start with verses 18 through 23. And we're going to look at the first aspect of this mirror of the gospel, that we belong to God. The gospel shows us that when we look in the mirror, we are belonging to God. So let's look at verses 18 through 23. I'll read them for us. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. And so he starts with these harsh words of do not deceive yourselves. And we have to ask, how were they deceiving themselves? And the first thing that we see is he ties back into a theme that we've been tracing for a few weeks now. They were choosing a human leader, a teacher in the church, a a guy that would come through and travel and speak. They were each within the church forming these little groups saying, well, I follow this person or I follow this person because I really like the way so-and-so talks. I really like the truth that they say. Nah, this guy, I don't really get it. I don't like it. And they were dividing up the church based on who they were following. And so he's saying, using that as a starting point, Corinthians, be careful, you are deceiving yourselves. Now we might say, wait a minute, what's the big deal having a favorite preacher? What's the big deal having a favorite teacher? It's because he takes it a step further than that. Because the bigger theme that he's tying into is that here is God's wisdom over here. God's ways of working, God's ways of creating the world, and then here's the world over here. And what he is saying to them is you as Christians are saying you're saved by Christ, you're shaped by the gospel, 
but your actions and your attitudes are totally denying it. You are deceiving yourselves in thinking that you are a healthy Christian or a healthy church. Now that's scary, isn't it? Would it be scary to have a heart's thinking I'm right with God and have it fundamentally be untrue? Would it be scary to think God is looking on our life and and thinking just blessings and it's wonderful things and that's not true? That he's actually looking at us and saying, oh no, no, you're going in the totally the wrong direction. That's scary, isn't it? We don't want to hear these things and yet this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, wake up. You need to hear these things and understand that you've got to stop deceiving yourselves. And so... In the rest of 18 through 19, he repeats these themes several times. God's way, God's wisdom is far better than the ways of this world. Now, I'm not going to go over that theme again. We've been talking about it for several weeks. You can get some teaching on that in the past sermons if you wish. But it's part of our Christian life to accept that on faith. God's way is best. Even if we don't see it, even if we don't feel it, That is the faith. So many Christians today are waking up every day saying, God, how are you treating me today? Well, if you're good to me today, then you're good. And if my life is falling apart, well, then God, I guess you're not good or you're not loving. And we're constantly judging God based on our immediate circumstances. We've got to stop doing that. God is God no matter what is going on in our lives. And in those times when our lives are falling apart, we need to cry out and say, God, I know you're good. I know it. I will trust in your goodness whether I'm seeing it right now or not. I know it is there. I will follow your wisdom and not the ways of this world. And then he gives some evidence, verses 19 through 20. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Now think about what he's doing here. Paul's tying this teaching in these two ways, the world's ways and God's way, He's tying it right into the Old Testament. Paul is, in a sense, coming to the Corinthians saying, look guys, I'm not making this stuff up. This is nothing new. I'm not Paul here, the amazing teacher that sits down with great creativity and just wows you with the amazing things I come up with. This has always been there. God has always said his way is different than the world's way. You know, one of the reasons as Christians we struggle to accept that, quite frankly, is because we're not in God's Word. We want to take a little tidbit for the day and then we weigh everything against that one little nugget and we don't understand the grand scope and plan of what God is doing and how His ways have always been different than this world. So he's saying, look, I'm not making this up. In verse 22, he has an interesting list. And I see three sets of opposites here. Because he goes on and he says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. And then he says, Whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world. Then he says, Or life or death, or the present or future. Now, let's understand what he's saying here. First of all, he lists these three teachers that he's talked about before. Paul himself, Apollos, this wandering, uh, traveling teacher that came through Corinth. All indications from Scripture are that he was a wonderful, godly man and a really good teacher. He was just different than Paul. And some people liked him better. That wasn't Apollos' fault. And the third is Cephas, which is another name for Peter. We don't know if Peter ever visited Corinth or if it was just sort of teachings of Peter that were brought from Jerusalem and people thought you know, he was the end-all, be-all. We just don't know. But he lists these, these three 
And I think what he's doing is he's setting them up over here as the teaching of the gospel. And then he's saying, or the world. So he's saying, look, let's look at two options here. You can have the teaching of the gospel or the world. And then he gives another contrast. He says, or you can have life or death or the present or future. So he's listing all these things. And I think inherent in this list are are things that were tugging at their souls. And they're looking and they're saying, I want to follow Christ. I think there was a genuine sincerity among the Christians in Corinth. They wanted to follow Christ, but they were being pulled into the world. I don't know about you, but I can sympathize with that, right? We feel that sometimes, but but wait a minute. You know, God, I, I still have to wake up and go to this place of work, and they're not Christians there, and there's certain things I have to do to get by, or, or there's certain things I have to do to get rank and status or promotions or whatever it is, and we feel this pull. And what's so interesting is that Paul lays out these things and he says, look, on the one hand, there's God's way. On the other hand, there's the world's way. And then what does he say about it? He says, all things are yours. Now think for a second what he is saying. He's saying, Christian, you are running after these things that the world is promising. What if you could understand it's already yours in Christ? You don't have to run after it. All sin is in some way a distortion of the blessing that God wants to give us. Right? All sin. You look all the way back to the Garden of Eden and and they look at the fruit and they say it's good for gaining wisdom. It's good for, what were the things they said? Help me out, Dan. Good for gaining wisdom. I know, I totally put you on the spot like I did myself. It's It's good for all these things. All those things were the things that God had already created a perfect creation for them, put them in it to enjoy this perfect relationship with him. Those things were already theirs. And yet sin comes along and says, no, 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 I got a better way. Let's try this. Paul's saying, if we can understand who we belong to, it will change everything about our perspective on this world. God has already and will give us all things in Jesus Christ. All the blessings that we think sin will give us, that it really won't, we actually already have in Christ. The joy, the comfort, the security, the pleasure, all those things that sin comes along and tries to give us a substitute for, God is saying, I have that for you forever with me. Sin is a poor substitute for the blessings of God. And then he says at the end of that passage, All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So the point here is that the gospel, when we look at the good news that Jesus Christ came and died in our place on the cross, saving us from our sins. It tells us something about ourselves. It tells us, number one, that running after the ways of the world is worthless because that's what led to the death in the first place. But number two, it tells us if God would do this for us and we belong to him, will he not also graciously give us all things? Why do we need to run anywhere else other than God? Now, He goes on to another way that the gospel helps us to look truly in the mirror and understand who we are. 
And it's this idea of being measured by faithfulness. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, this then is how you ought to regard us, Paul's talking about himself and the apostles and teachers, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, some will take this as a passage, and there are others, but take this to say, look, see, the Bible says we should never judge anyone. That is not the proper interpretation of this passage because that's not actually what this is talking about. And in fact, in just the next chapter, Paul is going to tell them, look, you have somebody in your church that's caught in sin. You need to kick them out. All right? So it doesn't make sense that Paul would say, on the one hand, you're never to judge anybody. And on the other hand, say, look, this guy needs to be put out of the church because he's dangerous and he's damaging the church. So what is he talking about? What he's talking about is the way that we judge. Because he's even saying, I need to be careful. I don't even judge myself. What is he talking about here? In verses 1 and 2, he lays it out very clearly. He's talking about those who have been entrusted with the gospel. And he uses an image of a steward. Okay, so follow me because I don't know if we have this today in, in exactly the same way. Maybe. But in that day and age, because there was no easy, quick forms of communication, if a business owner, a landowner, needed to go and do a business deal somewhere in another city or, or far away, they would leave their household, they would leave all of their property, let's say their farm, they would leave it in charge of a steward. And then they would go, sometimes for months, because again, there was no quick travel. They could be gone for a very long time. While that landowner is gone, somebody has to make decisions about the land. When are they going to plant? When are they going to harvest it? What's the wages of the workers going to be? What, what are they going to sell the, the crops for? They had to make all these important decisions. And the steward had a job. They were to do what they were supposed to do on behalf of the landowner. You with me so far? Okay. I don't think we have this so much today because there's instant communication. So you can call up the boss and just say, hey, what do you want to do? But it it wasn't that simple back then. So they had to leave it entrusted to somebody. Now, this is what Paul's tying into to help us understand the faithfulness, first of all, of Christian leaders, but I think also of Christians in general. You see, a fellow servant, because often that steward would be no more than a servant, a high-ranking servant, but still a servant. A fellow servant might come along and say to the steward, you're doing a bad job. I mean, us servants over here, you get to live in the master's house and we're still out in the hut and, and you're not giving us enough food and you're not making our lives happy and you're not doing everything that we want you to do. You're doing a bad job. Or the servant might sell off a property of a portion of the land. The steward might say, I'm going to sell this portion of the land. They would often have that authority. And the other servants might say, wait a minute, that's, that's the land I work on. I've been tilling that field for 20 years and now you're just going to sell it. You're a bad steward. You're doing this wrong. But see, that other servant may not know that before the landowner left, he said, hey, while I'm gone, sell this field. Do you see the difference in perspective Another servant might come along and say, wow, you're doing a great job. 
You gave us all big raises. You're just showering us with food. This is wonderful. Man, you're selling off the fields of the master and making our houses bigger and better. This is great. Is it great? Is it a good steward? What's the master going to say when he comes back? You see, what Paul is tapping into here is that the key judge of the effectiveness, first of Christian ministry, but second, I would say, of our Christian lives in general, is not the approval of people around us. It is the approval of God. And God's standard is not how effective you are, how important you are, this great impact that you've had on the world around you. God's standard is, look at verse 2, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. There's our standard. We need to be faithful. Will that make us important in this world? Maybe. Maybe not. That's not the point. Will that make people like us in this world? Maybe. Maybe not. That's not the point. Will being faithful to God grow a church and bring in a lot of people? Maybe. Maybe not. That's not the point. Paul is saying, look, to the Corinthians, you're judging based on the wrong things. Now, let me be careful here, because again, it's easy to take this to say Paul is saying, don't judge. Paul was very strong on teaching people you need to judge false teachers. Okay, There's many other teachings in the New Testament. Judge them, weigh it against Scripture, weigh whether or not what they're saying is true. That's not what this is about. This was the Corinthians saying, well, this guy gets a big following, so he must be a good teacher. That's the kind of judgment that Paul's saying, wait a minute, you've totally missed the point. These people aren't teaching for you. They're teaching for God. They're just stewards of the master. He's the one that can determine their faithfulness. Paul even applies it to himself saying, I don't even trust myself to judge my own ministry. Was Paul successful in ministry? Think about it for a second. I mean, he planted numerous churches around the Roman Empire. I would say hundreds, if not thousands of people, came to know Christ directly as a result of Paul, probably many hundreds of thousands more indirectly. In some way, shape, or form, I would say we are even here today as a result of Paul's ministry. Here we are studying letters from Paul that are the divine inspired word of God. I mean, I would say he was pretty effective, right? And yet Paul's saying, I don't trust myself to judge my own effectiveness. I need to constantly go to God and say, am I faithful? And you think of the words that Paul would use for me to to live as Christ and to die as gain, saying, look, I'm just going to keep going as long as I can follow Christ. And if that gains me a worldly following, for the glory of God, so be it. But as you're going to see later, he would also say, but if it means I'm despised and rejected and abused, then so be it. I will keep following God with the standard of faithfulness. The gospel shows us we must be measured by faithfulness, not temporary effectiveness. Now, there's a warning here. We need to be careful in our lives not to get caught up in immediate gratification. There's often this push to say, if I do this, these good things will immediately come out of it. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to treat people this way. I'm going to spend my money this way. I'm going to bend the rules this way because I'm going to get immediate results. And the warning here is to say, no, you need to look longer term. Christ is coming back. Keep your focus there. 
Everything will be exposed for the motivations that are going on. But there's also a huge promise and encouragement. And listen, I think some of you need to hear this today. You are more than your temporary impact on this world. Again, this is a passage, I would say, of warning, but there's huge blessings because what Paul is doing is he's saying, here's the gospel, now let's apply it. And part of that application is to say, you might be going through your days day after day after day saying, what difference am I making? Whose lives am I changing? What's the impact I'm having on this world? And Paul's saying, you need to understand that's not the measure of your success. You need to ask yourself, am I being faithful to Jesus Christ? I've brought up Billy Graham before. I think Billy Graham's a great man. I think God has used him in amazing ways. I have no problem with Billy Graham. I want to make that very clear. But I think sometimes we put people like him on a pedestal and we say, wow, what an amazing, effective God because hundreds of thousands of people would come to hear him preach. Millions of people have been saved because of his ministry. I really, truly believe that if Billy Graham were here today, he would say, look, I get up in the morning and get dressed and put on my shoes and go to work just like everybody else. My work just happens to be defined by God as going out and speaking to huge crowds. That's the work God gave me. Your work might be to get up and take care of your kids. It might be to change the diapers. It might be to go into that difficult situation at work. It might be to to just be a servant in your local neighborhood or in your local church. That's your service. Don't take your service and say it has less of an impact than somebody like Billy Graham, therefore I am less important. That is not true. It's looking in the wrong mirror. It's merely a question of faithfulness. When we stand before God, we're not measured by how impressed the world is with us. We're measured by our faithfulness. So we need to look at faithfulness and not impact. Last one, and this is hard. Verses 8 through 13. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign in that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. We are honored, or you are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, and we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That's not one of those verses you want to go, oh, praise God, so glad I'm a Christian. Woohoo! This is great. Thank you, God, for calling me to this. Look at what Paul is doing. You see, the Corinthian church thought very highly of themselves. And if I could, humbly, carefully, the American church suffers with this same illness. We often think very highly of ourselves. Like we're the end-all, be-all answer to all the world's problems. I mean, look at us. We're cutting edge. We're so great. They thought so highly of themselves, but it was because they were measuring themselves by worldly standards. Are they affluential? 
Do they have an impact? Are they liked by their society and their culture? And they're running down things that the world considers important, and somehow, some way in Corinth, the world was saying, yep, ah, we're doing great. This is wonderful. And so Paul's going to hold up this last aspect of the gospel mirror. And it is the standard of suffering. And this one, honestly, if we're going to let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts this morning, this needs to hurt. Okay, so let's look at this together. First of all, he's going to say, uh, if we back up to verses 6 and 7, he's going to say, look, I've held up these people as examples. Apollos, Cephas, himself. But then he says, don't go beyond what is written. He says, if you're going to measure your standard, you've got to weigh it against what God has said. He says, I'm not being novel. I've not made up anything new. This this standard, this application that Paul is making is not something new. He's writing based on an entirety of the Old Testament scriptures to base this on. And so we come to verses 8 through 13. He, and he gives in verse 8, he says, look, already you have become, or already you have all you want. That phrase there, all you want, is really interesting. Because it would be a phrase, have you ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet? Yeah. You know that moment when you have just gorged yourself? And I don't mean just, you know, had enough. I mean you really got your money's worth. You got to work hard to get your money's worth at an all-you-can-eat buffet. You got to eat way above and beyond. You know that moment after you've just gorged yourself and you're just, you know, stomach is just overflowing and you're, you're uncomfortably full? That's the meaning of this phrase, all you want. It's a phrase that was applied to the lush and luxurious parties that the rich would have. And they would just gorge themselves on food to the point where they just said, I could, I've got all I want. I can't eat another bite. It was not a positive thing. And Paul's saying to the Christians, really? You have all you want? You're so full you can't take any more? Already you have all you want. And then he says, already you have become rich. Richness in that world, I think much like today, was a standard of success. If you were rich, you must be doing something right. There must be something amazing about you. Because look, you're very wealthy, you're very rich. And then he says, already you have begun to reign. This was a status symbol. It was a power and influence symbol. And they were saying, and some people have said, look, they had a a misunderstanding of the end times and the coming of Christ. And there's some of that that's probably true. But I think, honestly, they were just thinking way highly, of more highly of themselves than they ought to. So Paul's saying, look, you're a king now. You look at the world and you say, look at how great we are. We're rich. We're powerful. We have authority. We're reigning. He says, really? Is that who you are? And then he says, and that without us. It's like, wow, good job. You're better than I am. And then he says, how I wish that you had really begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. Now understand what he's tapping into here. When a king went off to battle, and conquered a foreign land, he would often come back to his own city 
And in the procession, he would have some of his generals, some of the most uh, prestigious people that helped him to gain this victory, and they were given a place of great honor. Behind them might have been some of the soldiers that helped win the battle. Behind them might have been some of the soldiers that were conquered, and they were led along like slaves. Behind them might have been some of the people, and behind them were the worst of the worst of the worst. People that were just nobodies. And they were being brought in for a very specific purpose. First, as the procession walked down the the roads of the city so that the people could mock them and throw things at them and jeer them. And second, because that procession would eventually end up in the Colosseum where those people, through many fights and some of the soldiers that were conquered would be allowed to fight and, and there'd be great sport and even some honor for some of them. But the worst of the worst would merely be tied to poles or thrown into the Colosseum and be ripped to shreds by animals for the amusement of the people gathered there. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, wow, you think you're up here. Guess what? Myself and the apostles, we're like those lowly people just being led along to the Colosseum to be ripped apart. That's our standard of success because that's what we're experiencing. And look what he says about where that's coming from. For it seems to me that who has put them on display? God. What Paul is saying is, Corinthians, Christians, brothers and sisters, we're struggling and suffering out here, even though you think you're so great. But I know that our struggle and our suffering is the will of God. And so we will keep on going. He goes on. He says, we were fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We are weak, you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Take that phrase and just go back to verse 8 and look at what the Corinthians were claiming about themselves. Already you are rich, you've begun to reign, You have all you want. And Paul takes all those things and turns them on their head. And he says, we're struggling. We're hungry. We're homeless. We're nobodies in this world's eyes. And then he says, and this is something I think we need to hear. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Backing up a little bit more, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Let me ask you. As the world, and and I hope we can all understand this is going on, as the world gradually turns against us in our faith, and it is happening, as that happens and persecution happens, and we talked earlier about in the Middle East how our brothers and sisters in Christ are being slaughtered viciously, but it's not just there. It's all over. People are looking at us saying, you're foolish, you're backwards, you're you're stuck in the past, you're you're just ignorant, you're you're so stupid to think that you can hold on to this this guy saying he came from God and he died on a cross in your place. I mean, this is fairy tale sort of stuff, and they, they mock us. Look at how Paul said he and the apostles responded. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Now let me ask you this. Do Christians today respond the same way? Do we, as Christians in America, respond the same way? My answer, quite frankly, is no. When we're persecuted, we whine louder. 
When we're oppressed, we whine louder and we say mean and nasty things about those that are in authority and we, we attack them and their background. Look, I'm not saying the people are right, but God has ordained a way to hold up the mirror of the gospel to the world and guess what it includes? Our suffering. And Paul's looking at the world and saying they need to see the gospel and guys, they're not seeing it in Corinth by how great you're living. They're seeing it on the streets as we struggle to keep going for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to question the mirror that we weigh ourselves against. We're so caught up with success and measuring ourselves against success. And, and, and we take that as a non-Christian. We look at that in worldly ways. But then as a Christian, we come in and we do the same thing. We say, well, what does it mean to be a successful Christian? Well, if I'm good, God will bless me and I will be wealthy and healthy and wise and happy and, and all these things will happen. Paul would not agree with that whatsoever. There's a huge movement among many churches today and authors, and, and maybe you know some of them, God just wants you to be happy right now. God just, if, if you're just faithful and you just have good intentions, he will bless you and he will give you your best life now and everything will be great. That is outright heresy. It is not in line with the teaching of Scripture. And Christians, I think as our culture continues to move forward against the gospel, we need to understand part of our God-given role in this world is going to be to struggle and to suffer. Now, why did the apostles do this? Why were they willing to be so wronged in the sight of this world? Because they knew there was something better beyond it. They weren't worried about the consequences of this world because that wasn't the measure of who they are, wasn't the measure of their success. They looked for something beyond. They said, we know Christ is coming. That's where we'll be blessed. That's where we'll be happy. That's where we'll be healthy. And everything in the meantime is simply an opportunity to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were waiting and looking for something far greater. So what mirror are we looking in? How do we weigh ourselves? If we're not looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're not so saturated by understanding that we're sinners saved by grace in Christ, That God has a kingdom that is to come. And one of the greatest ways we display God's kingdom in this world, frankly, is by suffering for it. If we're not looking in that mirror, we're going to judge ourselves falsely. And we might be patting ourselves on the back when we shouldn't be. Or we might be racked with guilt when we shouldn't be. And so we need to have a good, hard look in the true mirror of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, forgive us for the many ways that we have put our ideas, our thoughts, our patterns of thinking on top of yours. God, I pray, whether it is through our good times or our struggles and our sufferings, that you would be glorified. I pray the gospel would be demonstrated in our lives, no matter what. And God, we don't run after suffering. We don't run after persecution. That, that's based on situations that go on. But Father, when it comes, may these words ring in our head. That maybe, just maybe, this is exactly what the world needs to see. To know that you are God and they are not. And that we trust something beyond what this world can give. And that we could point them to Jesus Christ. 
May we live our lives not only examining ourselves and our churches and everyone around us through the mirror of the gospel, but then reflecting the gospel in everything that we do. In your holy name we pray. Amen.